He's an ex-Navy SEAL and a professional Daniel Craig impersonator. More fiction coming up with Lee Goldberg. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Tammy Govea, and we are in studio today with author Lee Goldberg and his book, Killer Thriller. Hey, Lee. Hey. Welcome. It's great to be here. Oh, do you hear the audience? That's terrific. They're banging down the doors. I like the British host, too. I feel very classy. (laughs) This is like masterpiece theater for the internet. We try to elevate things. Though you're much more attractive than Alistair Cook. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So again, everyone, killer thriller. We want to talk about this adrenaline ride. Um, tell us a little bit about the story and about... Well, it's Ian about a Ludwig. guy like me who writes these action-adventure <laughs> novels who finds himself in a real-life action-adventure situation. I, I'm very active in the mystery and thriller genre, and I meet a lot of these authors. And it always strikes me <laughs> that you have authors who are built like me, who look like me, who are writing about these you know, action heroes who can kick ass and, and, and bed all these beautiful women. And, but the authors, not so much. <laughs> so I thought it might be fun to see if, what would happen if someone like me ended up in one of the plots that he writes. But I'm thinking authors are supposed to write what they know. So, Which is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> what happens if a schmuck like me has to be in a Jack Reacher situation? You know, I know Lee Child. I know Michael Connolly. I know these guys. And I just have a hard time picturing them in the worlds that they make up. That said, joking aside, a lot of authors and screenwriters I know have been contacted by Homeland Security to make stuff up that the... Uh, CIA and, and other law enforcement organizations and intelligence agencies can use to prepare for the next terrorist threat because they're bureaucrats. They're not imaginative. Yeah, yeah. And so authors often can predict the future. In fact, it's been kind of scary how many things in Killer Thriller out in bookstores now <laughs> have come true since I wrote that book. So they actually do bring people in. They do. This is not stuff of fiction. This is That's actually, reality. That's yeah. reality. So I thought, it wouldn't it be funny if, if a guy goes... In my first book in this series, True Fiction, an author is invited into the CIA to just spitball terrorism scenarios, and he goes about his life, and three years later, one of his scenarios comes true. He starts to call up the other authors who were at that, that uh, brainstorming session just to say, hey, look, one of mine came <laughs> true, and discovers they're all dead. They've had car accidents, illnesses. You and hate when that happens. He realizes, oh, crap. They're all dead. Someone's been trying to kill me, and he's on the run. I would love for you to do a little bit of reading. Uh-oh. Yes, uh-oh. Have you picked a spot? It's not I a have. sex scene, is it? I've picked a spot, and it's a very special spot. It's the very beginning. Okay. So let's turn to this. I'm not like that British announcer. I'm not that good a reader. <laughs> no accents required. And just, um, let's see. We are just going to go to... You just don't want to ask me any questions. You just want me to kill just, time I reading this stuff. I love being read, too. Oh, okay. I'm like a five-year-old child. Just up to... Right up to the sex scene. Just okay. right up there. Okay, you got it. All right. I apologize to all of you in advance. I'm a lousy reader. <laughs> Ian Ludlow's UCLA creative writing professor insisted that the key to being a successful novelist was writing from personal experience. That's why the professor was the author of five unpublished novels about sexually frustrated novelists who toiled in obscurity while teaching talentless and ungrateful students how to write. So Ian ignored his professor's edict and wrote escapist adventure stories that had nothing to do with his own mundane life. 
That's how he flunked the class, but eventually became a writer for TV shows like Hollywood and the Vine, Half Man, Half Plant, All Cop, and the author of the internationally best-selling series of action thrillers about Clint Straker, Spy for Hire. And that's how I ended up here, Ian said, standing in front of a hundred people at Seattle's Union Bay Books on a warm Saturday night. He was in his early 30s, dressed writer casual in a loose-fitting polo shirt, <laughs> jeans, podcast listeners, he's in and, a polo shirt. and a pair of Nikes, <laughs> which is exactly what I'm wearing now. Oh, God. Beside him was a table piled high with hardcover copies of his new novel, Death in the Sky. He gestured to the book cover, which featured a silhouette of Clint Straker. The publisher was too cheap to hire a male model, toting a rocket launcher against the backdrop of a 747 crashing into the Space Needle in a massive fireball. As you can see, I'm still writing outrageous stories about things I know nothing about, he said. The irony was that this time he actually did write from personal experience. There were only two, possibly three people still alive who knew that, and he'd hoped that one of them, Margot French, would show up for his book signing. But she was a no-show. He couldn't really blame her for that. He pretty much ruined her life. She'd been his author escort, a fancy name for someone who drives out-of-town authors around to signings in Seattle a year ago. That was when he discovered that a hypothetical terrorist plot he'd cooked up for the CIA to prepare them for worst-case scenarios had come true. Terrorists had hacked a plane and steered it by remote control into Waikiki, killing hundreds of people. But it wasn't terrorists. It was the CIA, or at least people who tricked him into believing they were the CIA, who were responsible for the massacre. Those people came gunning for him to bury the truth. Margot got unwillingly swept up in his plight, a run for their lives that ended with the conspiracy being foiled, thanks to their unheralded efforts. He hadn't seen Margot since. There you go. There you go. Did that lull you to sleep? Not at all. Well, you said you like being goose. read to, so. Silly goose. Killer Thriller, um, second book in the Ian Ludlow Thriller yes. series. As you mentioned, True Fiction. True Fiction is the first book. Um, we will talk about True Fiction later. Okay, so one of my favorite questions when I talk to authors is, how, how was the hero or the heroine born? You know, what inspired you? However, Ian Ludlow is actually a pseudonym. Yes, for used. a dashing young Jewish writer just starting out. For your very first book, yes, right? Yes, I wrote four <laughs> novels under the pseudonym Ian Ludlow. So I'd be on the shelf next to Robert Ludlum. And Ian, so Seriously, people would go... Seriously, you actually gave that thought. Ian Ludlow. You know, I think I read something by him. It wasn't bad. <laughs> it worked. It worked. I was it 19 worked. years old. I was a college student at UCLA. And these were... They don't do these anymore. They were men's action-adventure novels, sort of the male equivalent of the Harlequin romance. Okay. Men's – that's great. I have to look that up. Oh, you, they, I haven't heard that term. Oh, they, 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 had, they had titles like The Executioner, The Destroyer. There you go. The Effol – well, all kinds of things. So the Defoliator, <laughs> The Regurgitator. They all had E-R-O-R at the end and some guy with a giant gun on the cover with explosions and women with enormous hooters behind him. And, and, and they were fine literature. They were fine literature. <laughs> Talk about – because when it comes to thrillers, pacing is essential. Well, pacing is essential in any in any book. How, how did you fine-tune this? Because there's different kinds of pacing. There's that kind of slow burn pacing where there, as a reader, you are just got to kind of have that slow burn anxiety and anxiousness as you're reading it. But this pacing for, for both books, but particularly killer thriller, it... You know, it sounds so cheesy, but when you say heart-stopping, heart-pounding, that was literally my reaction reading this. It 
I'm, I'm going to give you a serious answer. That was entirely intentional, and it was extraordinarily difficult. What I wanted to capture, I've, I've done a lot of television film. Uh, I've written a lot of screenplays, had a lot of TV shows produced. And I wanted to capture the feeling of reading a really good screenplay. And screenplays are very lean. Unlike a book, a screenplay is a blueprint for other professionals to do their work. It's, it's so an actor knows what he's going to act, a director knows what he's going to direct, a location manager knows what location he has to find, a set builder knows what he has to build. But it also has to have a rhythm, a feel, a pace that sells what it's going to be like on the screen, that, that sells the script. So I wanted that same kind of energy. And one of the rules in writing a script is show, don't tell. If you don't say it, you don't see it, it doesn't exist. I wanted to do that in a sense in this book. I wanted this book to move like a script, okay. like a movie. And I wanted nothing extraneous. I didn't want lots of exposition. In fact, in reading that opening of Killer Thriller, part of me was cringing because <laughs> because my performance sucked, but also because it's a second book in a series with a complicated backstory. What you just heard at the beginning of that book is about all the exposition there is. The rest of it is very lean and tight. Rather than describe an entire room in a book, in this book, I would just find one salient detail and let that carry the, the description. I want it to be very, very fast moving. So I was vicious in cutting as I wrote the book. I mean, I, if there was something clever in the, in the narration, not narration, but in the prose, yeah. I lost it because it drew attention to the writing. I wanted everything to be visual so you forgot the writing was there, that the writing would become invisible and you'd just be caught up in the storytelling, or the story, rather, not the storytelling. My, one of my problems with literary fiction, and I love literary fiction, but one of my problems with it is sometimes the cleverness of the writing reminds you, oh, I'm reading, and pulls you out of the pulls characters, you yeah. pulls you out of the emotion. I didn't want any of that happening in true fiction or killer thriller. I wanted you to be like, <gasps> you know, when you were done with it, going, oh, my God. You know, and I have those moments when, you know, I put the book down and I went on and doing my business. But in the back of my mind, the story is there. And so it's, it's almost it's almost like living two different lives, living my usual life. But then I'm also in the life of Ian and, and, and his story and what's going on. I want to go back to what you were saying about keeping the story lean. Mm -hmm. You've said um, in the past that beginner writers in particular don't understand the power of the rewrite. Yep. Talk a little bit about that. Rewriting is writing, as far as I'm concerned. It, my own writing ritual is I do my best writing between 8 o'clock at night and 2 in the morning. And then I go to bed, wake up at 10, and have <laughs> breakfast. And what I spend the day doing is rewriting what I did the night before. I rewrite everything. So is it a gut instinctual thing that you know you know, what to toss aside? Because so many authors just hold on so tight. Well, you mentioned something earlier in your question, which is I knew the pace I wanted. Mm. I knew the feel I wanted. In a way, writing is like music. There's a beat. And you decide early on what you want the beat of this book to be. I knew I wanted this to be fast. I wanted it to be a certain kind of tempo. And if I felt, if I feel, if what I'm writing doesn't have that tempo, I cut. And I cut and I cut. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I never throw anything away. I, I have a special file that I put all the junk into because sometimes I'll, I'll resurrect it or I'll take a line from it. But also, too many writers fall in love with their writing. I mean, I will sometimes write an awful lot till I get to the, the moment I'm looking for. And, and some writers are too precious about the time they spent to go back and cut all the crap they wrote to get to that one moment. Um, I, I have no problem 
looking at a day's work and realizing only two lines of it, even if I wrote 10 or 15 pages, only two lines or a paragraph of it actually are, are salvageable. So is that a process, though, that's gotten easy for you to do that? No, it gets harder and harder. Oh, boy. Okay. Harder and harder. I would think after all these books and all these scripts, it'll get easier. Exactly. No, I'm just more self-aware of my own laziness. I have. There are cliches that we all share, but I have my own personal cliches. And sometimes a scene will come too easy or a chapter will come too easy, and I realize, oh, I fell back on on that old trick. And, and my brother, who's a writer, spots them real real quickly. Some get through. Oh, Lee, you used that <laughs> same thing or that same couplet or whatever five books ago. Oh, I did? <laughs> Damn. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about uh, one of the things I love about this story and actually both stories is the global context uh-huh. of it, just the international um, dimension of it. The research involved for a story like this has to be insane. You know how it started? It didn't start with this book, but I did five books with uh, Janet Ivanovich. Yeah. There were international thrillers. And my wife, who's French, I'm going to butcher her accent right now. Would come to me and say, "Your next book is going to be on the Amalfi Coast." Oh, that is butchering! And I, I said, well, "Why is it going to be on the Amalfi Coast? Because that's where I want to go." <laughs> there you go. But, but what if I have no story? You come up with one. You know. <laughs> so you know, Janet would say, "The next book's in Hawaii," and I'd say, "Why? Because I want to go there." Okay. So a lot of these places are places I'm curious about anyway. But for instance, in, in one book that I did with Janet, I knew I wanted to have this big diamond robbery um, in Belgium. And I in Antwerp, and I had the, the gist of it, but I knew I had to go to Antwerp to investigate it. And that was not too hard because it's not that far from Paris. It's a two-hour train ride, I think. But once I got to Antwerp and I saw the city, I changed everything. I found a new way of telling the tale. And, it, and, and it's happened to me many times before where I, I go out with a rough idea of what I intend to do. But when I get boots on the ground, yeah. being there changes everything. I would say... In my books, 90% of the locations I have visited firsthand. There are some I have not, either because it's too dangerous or I didn't get a chance to, to go there timing-wise. And then I use Google Earth and guidebooks and nonfiction books. Or in the case of uh, in one of the books I did with Janet, I couldn't make it to Istanbul. But I had a friend who is a professor of Turkish history and writes mystery novels who's in Istanbul. So I called her up and I said, here's what I need. And she went there and was my researcher. Yeah, and and (laughs) so I got live video because I think nothing can replace boots on the ground. That that moment when you see something, hear something, taste something, smell something that embodies the place and that you're able to then transfer it to the page to give it reality. So is the ghost city an actual... That's a real place. (gasps) Obviously, I could not go there. Yeah. Ordos in in China. It's real. That was amazing. Now, I don't know if their buildings wow. are actually being used as giant mainframe yeah. computer farms, but um, it wouldn't surprise it me wouldn't since su- just about everything <laughs> else in that book has come true. I actually got criticized in a review the other day. Lee Goldberg was so lazy, he just plucked stuff out of the newspaper and put it on the page. No, when I wrote it, it hadn't happened. And it's happening to me now with the third book I'm writing. I keep replotting it because everything I'm writing is coming true. Oh my gosh. But at a certain point, I had to just say, you know what? Screw it. I'm never going to get the book done if I keep rewriting exactly. it. And my wife, she's like, why can't you predict things like, you know, blackjack or whatever. <laughs> and that's a lot of crazy numbers. stuff that Putin is doing, you know, you know stuff that will help us out. <laughs> you know, I, the, the big fires in Calabasas yeah. that happened, I have a book coming out in the fall where I wrote about this massive wildfire in Calabasas and Malibu that sweeps through Malibu Creek State Park. And, and I described it on Canaan and all this stuff. 
my house was evacuated for the fire. And one of the things I took with me was the galley of my book <laughs> to proofread. I found myself sitting at my sister's house looking at news footage of the fire and the, the embers swirling on Canaan as I was editing my fictional mm. description of that. And I got it right. But still, there are people who are going to look at the book going, oh, Lee just took that fire yeah. from the newspaper. It's been uncanny and unsettling. You're not writing fast enough. I've become Ian Ludlow, the protagonist of my book, <laughs> whose fiction keeps coming true. Luckily, no one's shooting at me yet. Knock on wood. Yeah. Um, Want to go back again just really quick. This isn't wood, by the way. It's some I know. Sort of Here, I'll acrylic use my head. stuff. I'll use my head. Um, the research thing. Was there, when you started traveling... Um, was give me an example of what changed. Like you had something in mind, but then when you got boots to the ground, it took the story in a completely different direction. Um, that's a good question. I've had locations change. Um, in one of the, the books I did with Janet, I had a whole con that was going to take place in a hospital, but I happened to visit another location in the city that was near some sewers. and it, So it changed based on what I saw in Paris. I guess for Killer Thriller, I had an action scene in mind for... Hong Kong, but when I saw the elevated escalators, the people moving escalators, I went, That's so hard oh, for me to envision. Oh, nobody's done this before. Wow. Or maybe they have in, in Chinese Hong Kong cinema, but nothing I had seen had done it before. So I had this fun chase shootout sequence on the on the escalators. And Ian actually says that along the way. He's like, oh, I oh, need yeah. to use this. Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to use this. See, I'm going to use this in my next book. The, the difficult thing in both these books was spoofing the genre and drawing attention to the writing process and how writers think, while at the same time trying to tell a good thriller. Exactly. And in the first book, one of Ian's plots comes true um, that he came up with. In the second book, he's unaware that one of his plots has come true. <laughs> I didn't want to do the same thing in the third book. So in the third book, I'm, I also don't want to spoof um, thrillers in quite the same way in the third book. So the third book I'm writing now is all about what we're talking about right here at this table – how hard it is for writers to tell fictional stories in a world where there is questions about what is truth and what is fiction mm. and what is reality and what isn't, and how Ian now is completely lost and has writer's block because everything he writes is coming true. Yeah. And now that he's been sort of a real spy, he knows that the make-believe spy he came up with is crap. Yeah. You don't have to have all this special training. You can be an overweight writer in a polo shirt <laughs> and accomplish the same thing. You can save the world. So it's it's a challenge. James Garner, I think, is quoted as saying somewhere that people always accused him of not acting because he made it look so easy. Yeah, He's so, so relaxed. Effortlessly. People keep saying to me, oh, you must have had so much fun writing those books. They must have written themselves. They are so hard. <laughs> they are so hard. I'm, I'm questioning myself all the time. Just before I came in the studio, I was telling myself what a fraud I am and how you were, not. You were going to reveal me in, in this interview. Time's not... We're not done yet. Not, not, not done, done yet. yet. Here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the big reveal. Yes. The Wizard of Oz. Um, I love your story about your book, The Walk, uh -huh. and how it was resurrected, and you talking about how now this is kind of a golden age for writers. Well, it's kind of it's a golden age, not quite the way it was when I did The Walk. The Walk was a, a book I wrote in the early 2000s about a it seems to be a theme with me, a, a television network executive who's stuck in downtown L.A. when the big one hits. And he has to walk across this landscape of destruction back to his gated community in the San Fernando Valley. And by the time he gets there, he's a different man. He's been through so much and experienced so many things. And the book came out from a very small publisher. I think 
There was a copy sold to me, maybe one to my mother. <laughs> it was a complete bomb. No one bought it. It was a disaster. Along comes Amazon many years later, I think around 2009. Along comes Amazon and the Kindle and self-publishing and all that. And one of my friends said, I've always loved The Walk. Oh, that's who bought the third copy. And you should put it out on the Kindle. I said, well, no one bought it the first time. Where are they going to buy it now? He said, just do it. So I put it up there on the Kindle. And the first day it sold three copies, then five, then 10, then 20, then 30, then 100, then 200. It just kept growing because there was very little content at the time for the Kindle. So this time I I pulled it. I had it better copy edited. I put a real good cover on there and put it back up. And it did fantastic. I mean, hundreds of thousands of copies. It's just been huge for me. In fact, it's in pre-production now as a feature film, Knock on Acrylic. Um, <laughs> with some, I can't tell you who the stars are with some big stars attached. It's been wonderful. So I took all of my out-of-print backlist and put it on the Kindle. Oh and gosh. it did. I was making more money from my out-of-print books than I did when they were in print. So all these lumps of coal that were in my garage that were worthless now had value. Authors were discovering, oh, wait. These books they said were crap, that were dead and valueless. There's money in them. And so many authors discovered were empowered by the fact that their old books had value. There were a lot of mid-list writers who were dropped uh, by their publishers, who were told, sorry, you're finished, you can't write anymore, and went on to other jobs, and their self-esteem and their their, mm. their feeling of themselves as writers were gone. Along came the Kindle, and they were reborn. Yeah. And, and it, w- it was a great rebirth for the book, but also now... If a publisher drops you, it's not the end of the world. You can self-publish the book or go to other publishers or publish it. You know, there, there, there's so many new publishing options. I, I have a friend. I won't say his name because maybe he doesn't like me talking about this. But he was one of the first big self-published original authors. And I'm going to make up a publisher. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> but Simon & Schuster came along and gave him a million dollars for his book and, and two sequels. And the self-published community was like, you traitor, you betrayed us. Like, betrayed, he took a million dollars. I can always come back to self-publishing. I can't get a million dollar check. So he wrote the, you know, the the book came out, did really well, sold in a bunch of different countries. Second book came out, didn't do quite as well, sold a bunch of different countries. Third book, several of the foreign publishers loved it. Okay. But his American publisher said, not only are we not going to publish it, we think it's unpublishable, we want our money back. I've never heard of that. So ordinarily in the in the publishing industry, you would have been had a scarlet letter. You would have been toxic waste. No one's going to touch you after your publisher has dropped you. He went, oh, no problem. I'll just self-publish it. He returned the money, self-published it. The book did fantastic. Your, your, your career now is much more in your own hands. I'll give you another example. When I wrote True Fiction, I intentionally took it to Amazon Publishing. I could have gone to Random House, who's my publisher at the time, and a bunch of other publishers. But to me, this book felt like an Amazon publishing book. Why? Because of that pace. I thought it was perfect for the Kindle, for people to read on the subway, for people to read on an airplane, for people to read at the beach, but also because it wasn't a book that fit into a a genre very easily. I thought it, it wouldn't stay on the shelves very long if a major publisher came out with it. But I knew that Amazon would be able to deftly market it, that it would hit the sweet spot with people who are used to reading books on a device. And I was right. True Fiction just exploded. It was number one on Amazon for 14 straight days. And, and Killer Thriller is off to a great start as well. But that's not the only thing I'm writing. I have a book coming out in the fall called Lost Hills, yes. which is a police procedural. And it's far, far different from these two books. It it's, doesn't have that same pace. It has a whole different tempo and, and, and voice. And it's, it's, it's not as funny or over the top. It's grounded in absolute reality. 
Um, that way I can sort of switch it up and not get locked into doing one thing. So are you writing several books simultaneously? I'm writing a book while I'm sitting here talking to you. Are you? <laughs> Great. I don't know what that says. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's fascinating. But I also write television, too. I had a, a movie that was on the Hallmark Channel two weeks ago, excuse me, two weeks ago called Mystery 101. First of a series of movies. Actually, that's on my notes. There oh, we go. There's even mystery a picture 101, of it. Yeah. Hallmark mystery movie and series plot, co-writer and co-creator. Yes. So I'm I'm still doing lots of things. I write. Writers write. And I write books. I write novels, nonfiction, television, anything really. What's the most challenging? Like what keeps the juices flowing? The diversity. The diversity. Okay. That's that's one reason why you get bored easily, kind of thing. Or oh, you can get trapped. You can yeah. get stale. You can fall prey to, as I said earlier, your own cliches. If I was writing only killer thriller or true fiction, that 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 would bore me, and I'd start relying on what I'd done before. I like the fact I can do many different things. Hopefully, do them reasonably well. Yeah. But do many different things. The important thing is to keep writing and pay for the mortgage and pay for the tuition and pay for my facelift and teeth capping of down the road. <laughs> I would think, too, it doesn't give you time to second-guess yourself. Oh, you're you kidding know, me? You're on I'm, schedules and I, deadlines. And... I second-guess myself constantly. Every time I start a book, it's like, oh, God, I've lost all my talent. <laughs> I never had any, but this is the one that's going to reveal me. And my wife's like, I've heard this crap before, you know, you know stupid. <laughs> I really Don't like waste my wife. time with it. <laughs> well, you know what I do? I used to wonder why some of the producers I worked for blanketed their offices and pictures of their TV credits or their book jackets. I thought, oh, the raging ego. No, it's the raging insecurity. Mm. Because I have it in my office at home where no one ever comes in except me and the dog. And the dog is very unimpressed, let me tell you. (laughs) I look at it to remind myself, Lee, you've done this before. You've been in this position and it worked out. That book you thought would never get finished, it did. It's just that reminder that you can do this. Relax. I'm telling myself this right now because I'm up against the deadline. Yeah. But no, it's I never stop doubting myself. Ian has a just a small disdain for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Is that does that lurk inside you lurk? as well? <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with Hollywood. Why? Well, because I've done some real crap. I mean, I, I was on but Baywatch and I was on a lot of. Sh- I did the New Adventures of Flipper for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I got to tell you a story. Just to to prove that God exists and has a sense of humor. (laughs) When I was on Sequest, I had to write dialogue for a talking dolphin. There is nothing more depressing and soul-sucking than sitting at your desk writing dialogue for a dolphin. And then being told by the network, the dolphin would never say that. (laughs) You didn't capture the dolphin's angst and inner turmoil. So I made a vow after Sequest that I would never write for a dolphin again, which I thought was a pretty safe vow. Two weeks later, I was on The New Adventures of Flipper. There you go. Which, by the way, starred Jessica Alba. You won't find it on her resume anymore. And Terry Winter of The Sopranos and, and Boardwalk Empire, also on The New Adventures of Flipper. I'm outing all of you. Um, but that just proved that God has a sense of humor. I remember um, when I was on Hunter, it was a very difficult show, and uh, I quit. Why, why was this? So I'm not going to go into it, okay. but it was a difficult show. I quit. And, I, and just to show how vehemently I hated the show, I said, I would rather be on Baywatch. Seven days later, I was on Baywatch. So be careful. <laughs> you know, you get, words have power. You words of have all power. people should know this. Yes. So, I mean, I've done everything. I've done vampire shows, werewolf shows, medical shows, 
talking dolphin shows. You know, you have to be versatile to do that and 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 put your ego aside and do the best talking dolphin you possibly can or the best <laughs> lifeguard. And not that there's a big difference between David Hasselhoff and a talking dolphin, but you know, you have to put your wow. best <laughs> your best foot forward or best flipper forward. What was the most challenging part about Ian and Killer Thriller? It was striking the balance between spoofing the genre, writing a love letter to the genre, yeah. and telling a really good thriller. I wanted to be able to stand on its own as a thriller and not come across as Austin Powers or Inspector Clouseau or, or Get Smart. Okay. I wanted it to work as a satisfying thriller while actually acknowledging – I'll give you another example. I love Six Days of the Condor and North by Northwest and The Born Identity. Yeah. All these movies where a guy on the run picks up a woman and, and brings her on the run with him. And, and she's complaining and terrified at first. But by the end, they're both in bed together and in love, which I always thought was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, if some guy kidnaps you at gunpoint because he's on the run from assassins and makes you run with him, you're not going to sleep with him. You're not going to fall in love with him. You're going to want to kill him, too. So I thought it would be fun to flip that. And my hero in true fiction is on the run with this book publicist, and she's never in love with him. And she's a lesbian, so it's not going to happen. And I don't think I'm giving much away when at the end of the book everything turns out fine. They have a kiss, and he says, you weren't really a lesbian, right? You, just, <laughs> you were just saying that to put me off until you realized just how much you love me. She says, no, no, I'm a lesbian. Yeah. I'm even less attracted to you now than <laughs> I was before, and no way ever going to happen. Well, there's been Hollywood interest in the book, and the first thing they always say is, you got to change that. She has to say she really isn't a lesbian. No, you're missing the whole point. You're going to fight that. <laughs> yes. Okay, you, have to, you have to. I want to break that trope, that cliche. Also, most of these, maybe not so much North by Northwest, but Six Days of the Condor and Born Identity, the heroes always have some special skill. I mean, Robert Redford was trained as a CIA agent. Right. Born discovers that he's got this super spy inside of him he didn't know was there. My guy has... Nothing. 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 He just has his imagination. He fumbles his way through yes. all of this. You know, speaking of fumbling, the concept, the idea of fate plays a huge part yeah. in, in both of these stories. Um, where Where is that? That has to be intentional. Yeah. I mean, yeah. fate... Fate has a cruel sense of humor. Look at it in my own life. Bumbling adventure. Well, he's not so much bumbling, but there's another inspiration for true fiction. Um, Lawrence Block wrote an essay for Mystery Scene or one of these magazines. And I can't remember who he's writing about, so I'm going to make up the names. But uh, some friend of his, Irv Schmelzer, <laughs> wrote the um, Harry Reno detective novels. And Irv Schmelzer was complaining one day over lunch to, to Larry that, that um, someone had stolen his identity or broke into his house or something, and the police were getting nowhere with the case. And Lawrence Block said to Irv, well, why don't you solve it the way your hero, what I call him, Harry Reno, solves it. And um, Irv said, I can't do that. I'm not Harry Reno. What are you talking about? You've done 75 novels with this guy. He comes from you. You are him. No, I can't do it. But he, you are. I mean, I'm not a great detective. I'm not a superhero. But all the qualities I gave my detective characters and, and my spy heroes must exist in me somewhere. So I'm sure... If Lee Child was in a situation, he might not be able to physically do what Reacher does, but he certainly thinks like yes. Reacher because he created Reacher. He is Reacher. So the qualities that we imbue our fictional characters with and the insecurities and everything else do exist somewhere within us. In fact, it's one of the reasons my wife is very uncomfortable around me at times. She says, you keep writing these sleazy, dirtbag characters. <laughs> it's in there somewhere with you. And she also tells people... If I die before my husband, I don't care if I'm hit by a meteor or a bus. I want a complete investigation. Because <laughs> all he does is come up with perfect murders day after day. 
So it's actually in her, you know, letter to the lawyer. I don't care how I die, even if it's like terminal cancer. Lee may have done it. Check. Perpetual suspect. Yes. <laughs> Till death do you part. Yeah, so earlier, her earlier than me, I promise you. Remind us what else you've got coming down the pike because I've got things... uh, well, killer thrillers out now. Yes. My new novel, Lost Hills, is coming in September. Okay. And I have the third Ian Ludlow book, Fake Truth, coming in April. Coming in April, all right. Of 2020. And um, with luck, I mean, we'll know in a few weeks, there'll be the movie version of The Walk. And I believe they'll be ordering more Mystery 101 movies at Hallmark. That's fantastic. And I know um, I read both. I read True Fiction. Let me do this. Look. Here, guys, truth fiction. I'm that silhouette. And, and yes, especially on the motorcycle. Yeah. Can you see Lee on that that motorcycle there? So, true fiction and killer thriller. Um, I I suggest reading, you know, true fiction first and then killer thriller. You don't have to because he's so he's such a wonderful writer that you oh, can just God. hop She's into killer thriller. She's my new publicist, thriller. I think. Sorry, no offense, my publicist out here in the audience. <laughs> um, but you know, it just helps with it's. I love series. You know, when when Megan said, yeah, you know, I've got an author and he's got a series of books. I'm like, bring it, please. Give me all the books. So true fiction, killer thriller. There is one last question that I really, really want to know. My own teeth. Do you still sleep in Man from Uncle pajamas? Uh, No. Bummer. No. Born identity briefs. Uh, Oh, all right. Good. Born Identity Briefs. <laughs> Where can people find you on social media, Mr. Lee Goldberg? I'm at LeeGoldberg.com. Very easy to find. Lee Goldberg on Facebook. Lee Goldberg on Twitter. Uh, Daniel Craig elsewhere. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Book Circle online on Twitter at Book Circle On and on Insta, Book Circle Online. You can find me on Insta at Tammy Govea and Insta and Facebook, Tammy Govea Official. Lee, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This was fun. Thank Looking you. Looking forward to more. <laughs> Bye, guys. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menunos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.